Well, I went <coughs> home this afternoon. I live nearby, about 10 or 11 miles away, with the intention of looking at sitting with one particular talk. And then that wasn't where I was drawn. <laughs> the problem was I didn't yet know where I was drawn. <laughs> so I sat for a while this afternoon in my living room, and it was a lovely afternoon. Perhaps you enjoyed it. Bright sun, blue sky, and there are some big windows in my living room. So I just sat there for, you know, the better part of an hour in the sunlight, kind of just waiting for the threads of a topic to arise for tonight's talk. And where I landed was with a question, or a couple of questions. So I think the working title for this talk is, What are we doing here? And the other questions that came up for me is, were our, how is our practice fresh? How is it alive and current for us? Is it? So I'd like to start uh, by reading you the words of someone I consider to be a great spiritual seeker, a true yogi of his time, Henry David Thoreau. And it's a little bit of a long passage. Um, I hope you don't mind. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan, like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then, to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or, if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. It is remarkable how easily and insensibly we fall into a particular route and make a beaten path, a beaten track for ourselves. I had not lived there a week before my feet wore a path from my door to the pond side. 
and though it is five or six years since I trod it, it is still quite distinct. It is true I fear that others may have fallen into it and so helped to keep it open. The surface of the earth is soft and impressible by the feet of men, and so with the paths which the mind travels. How worn and dusty, then, must be the path, the highways of the world, how deep the ruts of tradition and conformity. I did not wish to take a cabin passage, but rather to go before the mast and on the deck of the world, for there I could best see the moonlight amid the mountains. I do not wish to go below now. I learned this, at least, by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary, new, universal, and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within him, or the old laws be expanded and interpreted in his favor in a more liberal sense, and he will live with the license of a higher order of beings. In proportion, as he simplifies his life, the laws of the universe will appear less complex. And solitude will not be solitude, nor poverty, poverty, nor weakness, weakness. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. There are a lot of good threads in that passage, I think. One of the questions that it brought to mind for me is, are there ways that we've beaten down the path in our practice? Might we be in a rut of tradition and conformity? Perhaps not. And I certainly don't mean to imply that that's so, but that it might be useful occasionally to look, to question, what are we doing here, really? So I began to look this afternoon at the ways that a fullness of presence and a sense of wakefulness come easily, and also at the ways in which those qualities are more challenging, more difficult.
it seems such a simple thing on one level to be awake, alive, engaged in our lives. And yet, as practitioners, I'm sure we know it's not so easy. It can be pretty difficult, in fact. Even in the areas where it might seem like it should come more easily, more readily. So are we awake, alive, present in the joys and the ease in life? One would think that this would be completely natural, being fully present with ease, with comfort, with beauty. But sometimes we're so accustomed to working hard. We're so accustomed to struggle that when ease comes in our life or in our practice, doubt can arise. We might suddenly wonder, am I doing something wrong? Am I not working hard enough? Can I trust this? I think to a large degree, it depends on one's personality type. And also, of course, the conditions of one's life, our personal conditioning and history, whether it comes easily or not, being present with joys or ease. But it can be interesting just to look. How about today? How was it for you? I noticed as I was sitting in my living room this afternoon and the sun was moving to the west and lowering in the sky that the snow outside in my yard, this kind of white canvas of snow, became painted with shadows from the trees that ring the yard as the sun set behind them. And I was just sitting and seeing, quite calm and peaceful. And then suddenly this worry would pop up. Will there be a talk tonight (laughs) if I just sit here? <laughs> it can be harder to trust the silence, to trust the peace, to trust the ease of not doing when it's not what we're accustomed to. Maybe as we practice, we see our own patterns in terms of how we meet the present moment's experience. Sometimes it can seem, sometimes I've seen in my own experience, this pattern of kind of 
the attention sort of bouncing off of the present moment when the present moment is more neutral or even sweet. What is that? What's going on there? Sometimes just noticing it, I can choose to experiment like I did this afternoon with trusting, with allowing myself to be more relaxed in the ease, relaxed in the silence. Maybe you see something similar in your experience. Maybe not. On the other hand, maybe some of us, and certainly this is true at times for myself, we can be experts at pleasantness or ease, at allowing it, except that then we might become a little bit like a dog with a bone, (laughs) clenching that pleasant moment between our teeth and gnawing at it, (laughs) holding on for dear life, not wanting to let it go, and upset, maybe even distraught when it passes. Or a pleasant moment, a string of pleasant moments, some comfort, some ease arises, and there's that sense of, ah, I've got it, finally. Now, how can I keep it going? (laughs) Thinking about this reminded me of an experience I had on my first three-month retreat at next door at the retreat center. So, you know, put in the effort over three months and, you know, hard moments, plenty of them, and sweetness. And especially at the end, it's kind of the sweetness that you left. You le- I, I can often be left with that taste in my mouth at the end, kind of forget the hard work. But I remember um, many uh, very lovely moments during breakfast, which I would take outside onto the small back porch to eat. And maybe you know the spot, maybe not, but there are big evergreen trees just across the lawn when you're sitting on that back porch that have quite a lovely presence, I think. So I was out there every morning with my breakfast kind of communing with these beautiful tree beings. And just, you know, breakfast is generally pleasant. (laughs) So I'd eat an orange, and then, you know, I'd have this warm bowl of oatmeal, and just very relaxed, very sweet, very present with breakfast. And so that memory was with me, you know, that that experience was... um, it made a strong impression during my months of retreat time. And when the retreat ended, I wasn't ready to end. I decided I would just continue to practice. So 
the thing is, the conditions, as you might know from your experience here, really changed. This whole group of yogis that I had been practicing with for three months, you know, 95% of them left. And there were just a few of us, two or three, four, I can't remember, that stayed on. And I have this very clear memory about breakfast (laughs) in those days when I stayed on. Because I kept going out to the porch, even though at this point, you know, it was well into December and getting colder and colder. But I knew I could have that lovely experience out there. You know, it was kind of like I just totally expected it. So I kept going out, and it just wasn't the same. The whole conditions of the retreat had really changed. There was no longer really a retreat going on. There were a few of us on our own, you know, my first attempt at self-retreat. And I was sitting out there, you know, and I made sure I did it in the right order, eat the orange, (laughs) then the oatmeal. You know, I kept trying to recreate those pleasant moments. But it had passed. It had changed. And actually, it took me some days to realize that what was true now, then, was that I was lonely, I was sad, and I was cold. (laughs) It was kind of a big realization at the time. (laughs) Just that sense of holding on, thinking I could recreate that pleasantness. So how do we do the next thing? Whatever it is, the next moment in practice, the next sitting period or walking period or meal, or the next thing in our lives without dragging the past along for comparison's sake. Or how do we do the next thing without the burden of expectation? I think we start by recognizing that that's what we're doing if we're dragging along the past in the way that I finally realized you know, that I was trying to recreate something that had changed, had passed. So we use the skills that we develop in practice in order to rest in the present moment, to rest in that sense of presence. When there's more of a sense of resting there in that sense of the fullness of presence, It's as though we can more easily receive the next moment, whatever it holds. Maybe you're thinking as I'm exploring presence with ease in practice or in life, 
well, it's not really relevant to me. I don't experience ease. And I would challenge you to look. Is that really true? I think that it's quite possible that there is some ease in your day. Even if it's only a moment here or there. And that there is beauty all around us and within us. And that there are moments of peace. Can we allow that? Can we let it in? Can we recognize it if it's not our habit to? Might we even be nourished by those moments, even as they pass? Not clinging to any of it, not creating an identity out of it, that sense of, ah, I've got it, I'm there, I've arrived in practice. Just being, relaxing into it, breathing in and out in peace, in ease. So again, depending on what type you are, depending on your conditioning, maybe that does come easier to you. Or the opposite. Maybe it's harder to find or to trust or to allow those easeful moments in practice. So how are we awake? How are we alive in our practice? in the struggles, in the sorrows, in the difficulties. Sometimes, if our struggles are great, you know, if we're really challenged, they demand a fullness of presence. They demand a certain kind of engagement. In a way, it's almost hard not to be present. I think this perhaps is what I've seen with friends I've known who have suddenly had to face, you know, a very challenging illness, life-threatening illness, or some other very challenging situation in life. If they get through it, they often say that there was a gift in it. I think it's that it does call forth that kind of presence quite naturally. But what about our day-to-day, more run-of-the-mill, lesser struggles? What about just an attitude of irritation or annoyance that's a frequent visitor? Can we be present with that? What about sorrows in our lives? Regrets, losses, challenges, sadness. These can take some time. 
to open to or even to notice that they're there and really begin to trust that they're worthy of our attention. Not only worthy, but perhaps you know, as I I can say that I've seen in my experience, that often the challenging times bear fruit that we wouldn't expect. So it may not be uh, readily available to appreciate them while they're happening, but sometimes after the fact we can see that they really called forth qualities of presence and uh, strength that serve us well. I have a very short poem from Mary Oliver. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. And her notation under the title of this poem is, In my sleep I dreamed this poem. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. What are the gifts of being present with darkness, with struggle? I can remember again, I think from that first three-month retreat, an experience of facing some kind of difficulty, and I no longer remember what it was, but just feeling really uh, overwhelmed. (laughs) And like, you know, I don't know what point in the retreat it was, but there was still plenty left. (laughs) And I remember feeling like panicked, like I just could not imagine going on for weeks or months when I was struggling like this. And I wrote a note to one of the teachers saying, you know, did anybody ever die of blah, 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 whatever it was I was struggling with. (laughs) It was Sharon Salzberg, and she wrote me back and said, never from just one moment at a time of it. And I remember like, holding on to that note, it really went in. (laughs) It was a kind of, uh, at the time, a kind of survival technique to stay in the present moment because I couldn't bear (laughs) the thought of adding the future because the pleasant moment was so hard. The pleasant moment, the present moment was so hard. But it became actually quite a useful thing to have learned to recognize when the mind is adding in, you know, the future, the unknowable, undoable future, adding it to some present moment, you know, struggle. So that can be a certain kind of gift in struggle, that we learn to take it moment by moment, because really that's all we can do. 
other gifts of struggle, of being with struggle in our lives, in our practice, are qualities such as patience, perseverance, humility, perhaps even forgiveness, forgiving ourselves for not being at ease, for not feeling peaceful. And the greatest gift of working with struggle, of opening to what's difficult, is the heart of compassion. And the tremendous connection that compassion gives us with all beings everywhere who are struggling. Until we have really opened on some level to our own struggles, our own difficulties, our own sorrows and losses, we can't really fully open to others. And to me, that's a tremendous gift and a great reminder that our practice is not for ourselves alone. It can't be. A couple of days ago on Sunday, it was kind of a nice day, Sunday afternoon, and I um, tested the snow in our yard, and I could walk on top of it. You know, there's been lots of storms and sometimes ice and, you know, rain and freezing, and so there's these layers, and I I tested it, and it could hold my weight. So I ventured out across the yard, which is uh, fairly wide, out to this big old uh, forsythia bush in the yard that's like half buried in the snow right now. And if, in case you don't know, forsythia is this uh, spring-blooming bush that just, uh, there's a fake one actually in the hallway, the yellow blossoms. That's what it looks like. It gets covered in yellow blossoms in the spring. And if you clip it in the winter and bring it inside, and put it in water, it sometimes, if you're lucky, (laughs) blooms in the winter. You can kind of force the bloom a little bit ahead of time. So I thought, oh, I'll go get some branches and see if I can force the bloom. So I went walking out and I was, you know, totally cool walking on top of this really deep snow. And when I got to the bush, I'm clipping and kind of, you know, not so focused on my walking anymore and, you know, trying, going for a branch here and there. And I went around one side and suddenly, boom, I fell in mid-thigh. Literally, you know, it was so deep, mid-thigh. And then I put my arm down to see if I could push myself up and the arm went into the shoulder. <laughs> and so I was really kind of lodged in the snow and I wasn't really too worried. <laughs> I was just in my yard, but (laughs) it was a moment, actually. Um, (laughs) And today, when I was thinking about this talk, this can happen for me sometimes when I'm thinking about a Dharma topic. It's like suddenly everything becomes a metaphor for practice. 
And that image, that experience, seemed a metaphor for practice in a couple of different ways, if you'll allow me. Um, just that we can be going along, you know, feeling like we have our footing. Okay, I've got the rhythm of the practice. I know what I'm doing. I've got my walking and my sitting and my orange before the oatmeal. And then, boom, you know, something happens and suddenly we're up to our thighs and whatever it is that's taken us by surprise and that's sticky and challenging to get out of. Uh, or maybe we're up to our neck in it. Who knows? <laughs> So, you know, there was a moment when I was (laughs) wedged in the snow that I thought, oh, am I going to have to start yelling for help (laughs) and hope my husband hears me (laughs) come out with a shovel (laughs) to extricate me? Um, And then, you know, of course, I realized, no, like, just calm down, (laughs) relax, pay attention, take it slowly, Find your way out. And that's what we do in our practice. We might, you know, have hit some stride, be kind of cruising along, things are going well, we're feeling confident, and then suddenly we're in a snowbank, you know, so to speak. (laughs) If we panic, you know, it gets worse. But really, we're okay. You know, we can look around and see what the next step is to find our way out or back. Okay, I can't resist (laughs) telling you the other uh, metaphor for practice in the forsythia. It was about forcing the bloom, actually. I mean, I think it's a lovely thing, you know, and it's pretty benign to clip a few branches from your forsythia bush and bring them in. But sometimes I think in practice there's a way that we're trying to force the bloom when what we need to do is wait you know, and keep showing up while it's winter in our hearts. And wait, and spring will come, and the bloom will be there when we're not uh, grasping after it. You know, I did find myself today examining those branches that I just brought in two days ago. I mean, they're barely waking up and taking in a little water. And I was looking like, okay, are (laughs) are the flowers coming? So it's good to notice if that's what we're doing in our practice. Some years ago, uh, I read a book of essays about activism written by Alice Walker. And the, uh, in the preface, uh, she wrote these words that I'd like to read to you about facing great challenge, great challenge in our lives, great challenge in the world, and the qualities that uh, 
we can bring to that. And I just love the, the words that she used. It sounded so, um, it's such a Dharma perspective to me. She said, <clears throat> there is a moment in any kind of struggle when one feels in full bloom, vivid, alive. One might be very challenged in such a moment and still be at peace. Martin Luther King Jr. at the mountaintop, Gandhi dying with the name of God on his lips, Sojourner Truth bearing her breasts at a women's rights convention in 1851, Harriet Tubman exposing her revolver to some of the slaves she had freed who, fearing an unknown freedom, looked longingly backward to their captivity, thereby endangering the freedom of all. To be such a person or to witness anyone at this moment of transcendent presence is to know that what is human is linked by a daring compassion to what is divine. During my years of being close to people engaged in changing the world, I have seen fear turn into courage, sorrow into joy, funerals into celebrations, because whatever the consequences, people standing side by side have expressed who they really are, and that ultimately they believe in the love of the world and each other enough to be that. This is the foundation of activism. Transcendent presence and daring compassion. So looking at how we're awake or alive or engaged in our practice in terms of ease or comfort and in terms of struggle, difficulty. It's also important, I think, to question, at least to examine our agendas about our practice. Sometimes we come to practice with these ideas that it will make us be good or pure or holy or enlightened even. And these are beautiful aspirations. But I think it's interesting to look at the way Thoreau talked about castles in the sky. They might be castles in the sky unless we're willing to do the work 
of building the foundations under them. So these ideas, these aspirations can be traps or barriers in our practice if they're used as expectations or if we use them in a way to constantly measure our progress or our lack of progress in living up to them. What what are we doing then if that's what's happening? Is our practice really alive? Even techniques in practice, which, as we know, are many, they are so helpful. But still, they're only the finger pointing to the moon and not the moon. So relax and experiment. Walk somewhere else. (laughs) Eat your breakfast on a different porch. Sit longer or sit shorter. If you strive, ease up. And if you drift along, practice in a more dedicated way. It's healthy to experiment, to see what helps us feel engaged, feel present, feel awake. Can we practice trusting the truth of our experience? Trusting what is arising rather than doing battle with it? Can we open to it? with the aim of seeing clearly, with the aim of understanding. Sometimes it seems that really all we need to do is show up and keep showing up and that the knots and the tangles unravel and unwind on their own when we really show up. So maybe the answer or an answer to what are we doing here is a phrase that Jack Kornfield calls in his book, A Path with Heart, taking the one seat, tending to all that arises with compassionate awareness. taking our seat in the present moment, in the truth of our experience. I'd like to close with a little bit from that book, Path with Heart. From taking the one seat, a tremendous sense of wholeness and abundance arises within us. This is because we are open to everything. We reject nothing. Thomas Merton described the power of such openness in his Asian journals. 
He visited the ancient monastery of Polonnaruwa, where several enormous statues of the Buddha are carved in the face of a marble cliff. He described them as almost alive, the most wonderful works of art he had ever seen. Looking at the Buddhas, peaceful and empty, he saw, quote, the silence of the extraordinary faces, the great smiles, huge and yet subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing, the great smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but a peace that has seen through every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation." End quote. For the Buddha, the whole world arises in emptiness and everything in it is connected in compassion. In this awakened and compassionate consciousness, the whole world becomes our seat. Let's take our seat together for a few moments in silence. 